Several years ago, when our uh, son was about six or seven years old, we were spending the day together, and it was in the summertime, and he didn't have school, and so I thought what I'd do is spend a, a day with him. Took him out to a construction site, showed him what was going on, and he was just amazed, man. His eyeballs were popping out as he looked around and saw all the activities, saw the trucks and the, you know, and the tractors and the, the graders that were going. And, you know, you hear the constant motion and noise that's out there, and you hear trucks backing up, and you hear the beep, 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 beep of trucks backing up. And I tell him, Ryan, you know, be careful when you hear that. That means the truck's backing up. And so we spent the day together, went to a bank right afterwards, and as we were standing in line at the bank, Ryan was in line, and he was standing next to me, and right in front of us was a woman who was a rather large woman, and she uh, worked for UPS, and Ryan, as he was standing behind her, he said, in not a real quiet voice, he said, Dad, look how big her bottom is. <laughs> and you know, and you got to understand, it was about eye level, and so that was, that was the observation that he was making at the time. And, and I said, you know what, Ryan, you know, that's not, that's not, you don't say that. And he was like, man, look how big her legs are. Her legs are huge. And it was like, she was going, and I was like, hey, listen, you know what? And it was, it was kind of like, you got to be quiet. And just then, this woman's pager went off. And, and he hears beep, 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 and yells at the top of his voice, Dad, look out, she's backing up. And it's, and it's a, a, a moment in your life where you just kind of go. And so after we jumped backwards, we had an interesting rest of the day. But every time I think of that and I think of that story, it reminds me how easy it is to sometimes make a wrong interpretation of a situation. You know, to look at it through a wrong lens and to jump to a wrong conclusion. And throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus repeatedly identify himself as the Christ, the Savior, the one whom the angel announced as having arrived to the shepherds. If you recall, the angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior, Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah God. There is born for you this day in the city of David a Savior, Yahweh, Jehovah God. Jesus Christ, both man and God. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, as God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus is the ultimate authority, and he's demonstrated this to be true. If you've been with us, you may recall that Jesus demonstrated his authority up to date so far in our study over demons, over disease. He went to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law had a deadly fever, and Jesus healed her of that affliction. And it said that all the people in the town and the surrounding areas brought those whom in their families had some type of disease or affliction, and he healed various diseases. He demonstrated his authority over the disciples as he called them from their fishing business and said, follow me. His authority over defilement and that he would cleanse a leper, something that had never been done in history as far as a person coming and with an obvious deformity and, and falling apart. And the Bible says that the man was full of leprosy and Jesus cleansed him. He demonstrated his authority over defectiveness and that he 
forgave the sins of a man whose sins had led to a paralysis of his body. He demonstrated his authority over despised people and that he forgave Levi and went to his home and had a party with sinners and those who were unrighteous in the view of the righteous people. Jesus will demonstrate in this particular passage that we'll look at today in, John, in, in uh, Luke chapter 6. He'll demonstrate his authority over days and deformity, as I've got outlined in the bulletin, as he identifies himself as Lord of the Sabbath. One more clear claim that Jesus is God, the ultimate and final authority. And yet there were those who continually saw these things, this evidence of his claim of deity, there were those who were self-righteous, those who were religious, who saw all the same things that other people saw, and yet they never bowed their knee to him, and they rejected him and refused to believe that he was and is who God claims that he is, the Savior of the world. They refused to see the objective evidence because, frankly, they didn't want to see it. But there were those who came to him, and in, in humility bowed their knees before him and received forgiveness, not only spiritual healing, but also in many cases there was physical healing. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 6 and our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. In verse 1, we read these words. Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath, he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he rose and came forward. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save a life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. I mentioned that one clear theme through, throughout Luke's examination of the life of Christ. In fact, this past week when we were at UCLA Medical Center, uh, Linda had taken a, a, a set of this series up to date. And one of the uh, surgeons who did my surgery is a, uh, just a wonderful gal that we've really developed a relationship and really respect and appreciate her. But Linda brought that and gave it to her and said, you know, we have a gift for you. And, uh, and I told her that, you know, it's, it's the Gospel of Luke, but what I'm going to name the series, I believe I'm going to name the series, A Physician Examines the Life of Jesus Christ. And I said, and I don't know if you know, but Luke was a physician, and I thought it would be interesting to you as a doctor to take a look and examine the life of Christ through a physician's eyes. And she was very appreciative, and we're praying that she'll listen to him, and we're going to get to see each other again, unfortunately. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those, you know, mixed things. But, you know, we're looking forward to it, not really. But, um, 
But so, and, and we look at this, you know, one of the themes throughout Luke's gospel to date has been that of the authority of Christ. And another theme that would be uh, appropriate to discuss is that of his compassion and his mercy. You know, it's important that we see the compassion and mercy of Jesus as a backdrop to what's taking place in this passage that we've just read. If you recall, Jesus uh, had announced his ministry by quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And see, Jesus, he announced that would be his ministry, and then he followed that announcement by action. And they were acts of compassion and mercy. As I mentioned, there were multiple healings. There was forgiveness of sin. And Jesus' talk and his walk were going in the same direction. At Levi's house, in an answer to the Pharisees questioning about his associating with sinners, he reminded them of Hosea 6.6 from Matthew's parallel account of that, uh, of that event. He said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy was at the heart of Jesus' ministry. It's at the heart of his ministry even today. Compassion and mercy for those who are in need. Hosea 6, 6 in its entirety reads like this, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What he was saying in his message to the northern kingdom was that sacrifices and burnt offerings in themselves held no weight with God. What pleased God then and what pleases God today is a heart devoted to him and a life characterized by mercy. Mercy is inseparable from genuine saving faith. Amos, another 8th century prophet, wrote this to the northern kingdom. He said, You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. I hate and I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And as I read that, I couldn't help but think that religious observance that does not look out for the plight of the needy in society is unacceptable to God. What he is saying to us today is that, you know, don't come to church and try to worship me with your songs and with your lips when your heart is far from me. Don't come and put offerings in that box in the back from money that you got by lying and cheating and stealing from people. I'm not mocked by any of that nonsense. Don't do that. I desire mercy. I desire obedience. He told Saul that it was better to obey than to offer sacrifices. That obedience is what God is looking for in His people. He wants us to be obedient 24-7. He wants us to be obedient in everything that we understand. To Him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to Him it is sin. 
He doesn't want, want us to be out in the world saying, let's lie, cheat, and steal. And, oh, you know what? Whatever money we make, God will give more money than I could give to you. And he says, I don't want your crummy money. I don't want anything from you that comes from that type of activity and lifestyle. Don't mock me with your worship that isn't worship at all when your heart's far from me. Because God's greatest desire is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul. I've mentioned to you before and I'll mention it to you now that when we come in and we worship, that we leave the talking and the visiting and, 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 the, and, the, and all the, the activity of life, we leave it out in the patio. And when we come in, we're, we're prepared to worship God. For we've set aside this time for Him. We can visit and fellowship and talk afterwards. We can visit and fellowship and talk in our small groups and during the week. we got plenty of time to visit with one another. But I'm going to encourage you and implore you and exhort you. When we come in, we come in with hearts that are prepared to worship our God. When we put an offering in the box, we put it in with a, a cheerful heart, an attitude of gratitude that says, God, everything that I have comes from your hand, and all I do is give back to you as a token of my understanding of what you have given to me. We think about it. When we're baptized, we think about the fact that, man, you know what? I'm going down and I'm identifying in the water with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his burial. And when I come up, I'm, I'm identifying with his resurrection that he was raised to the newness of life. So that I'm going to put my, that old self as dead and I'm going to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. All things have passed away and all things become new. That guy no longer exists as Saul of Tarsus died and Paul was raised to the newness of life. He never went back to Saul. Levi, as he died and was raised to the newness of life, was called Matthew, a gift from God. By grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. Micah, contemporary of Hosea and Amos, who prophesied to the southern kingdom, gave this truth its most famous expression when he says, And what does the Lord require of you, O God's people, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And I ask you the question, have you acted justly this week? Have you loved mercy this week? And have you walked humbly with your God this week? If not, praise God, because today's a new day. And next week's a new week. And we learn from our mistakes and we're convicted by the Spirit of God at the sin in our life and we confess and agree with Him when we're wrong. God, I came in here this morning and I didn't have an attitude of worship. Forgive me for that. But next time it'll be different because, God, you're teaching me through your Spirit's presence in my life, through your Word, you're convicting me and I'm going to begin to apply those truths. The point is very simple. Mercy is a sure sign of knowing God and living a life that pleases Him, which brings us now to our passage. In Luke 6, the Pharisees demonstrate they did not care about the needs of others, whether physical or spiritual. They only cared about their own rules and regulations and interpretations of God's laws, and they were opposed to anyone, Jesus, even God, who thought otherwise. In Luke chapter 6, we find the religious leaders trying to go one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, and they're about to learn the hard way it would be like me going one-on-one -on -one with Michael Jordan in basketball. There's times where you just go, you know what? You don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, and you don't go one-on-one -on -one with God. 
God says, do not test the Lord your God. You will never win in that game. So to convince them of his authority over days in verses 1 through 5, we see this account. It says, Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. It's important to note that the Pharisees had folks watching Jesus and his disciples at all times. You know, they were continually trying to find something to accuse him of being guilty of before God. How else do you explain how they knew what they were doing in the cornfields or the grain fields? In in, in verse 7 it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him again on another Sabbath, which we'll look at, to see if he healed anybody in order that they might find a reason to accuse him. They were always watching him. They were waiting and watching and hoping and setting him up and putting him into situations where somehow they would find some grounds to accuse him before God. And here they are again. They're following his guys and they're walking through a grain field and they're watching and they can't wait to see what they'll do. It's the Sabbath. And Oh, good news, we caught him again. Well, what were they doing? Well, all that they were doing as they were going through the cornfields, the accusation that they made was, well, they, they were eating some of the grain. But what was the problem with that? The Jewish legal code, you know, contained a very gracious provision for the hungry that allowed for a person to handpick fruit or grain for personal consumption. Some of us may be thinking, well, I was walking through a grain field and they were eating the grain of another person's field. That's what they were guilty of. And the answer was no, they weren't guilty of that at all because the law, Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25, reads this way. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes that you want. But do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. So the disciples weren't guilty of anything before God. God had allowed very graciously in his law to provide for those who were hungry. Basically, we're saying you can go in and eat whatever it is that you can eat if you're hungry, but don't go filling baskets up and don't take a sickle and don't start loading up the wagons and hauling it all away. You know, that would be a violation of God's commandment. But if you're hungry, eat whatever you want to eat. So the accusation that they made in verse 2 was very simple. It says, but, you see the contrast there, but some of the Pharisees indicating, you know what, but they didn't like what they saw and what they heard. But some of them said, why do you people do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what was the accusation? The accusation wasn't that they were eating. The accusation was you could eat any other day of the week, but you're eating on the Sabbath, so you're guilty before God. And that's what the problem was. It was done on the Sabbath. In their opinion, the day of the week made it wrong. And the question that we have to ask is, how did they come to that conclusion? Here's how they came to it. Of the Ten Commandments, one says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. That is a commandment of God. Very clear. On the Sabbath you shall rest, and you shall set aside that day to worship God, to praise God, to honor God for the life that he has given and the provisions he has made in your life, and we're to set aside that time to do so. But my question is, well, but what does that have to do with what we just heard? Were the disciples in the fields to work that day? Or were they walking through and were merely hungry and ate as they went through? 
The problem was that the scribes and the Pharisees, if you recall from another message, the clear command of God was that you keep the Sabbath holy, that you set it aside to honor God, that you don't work on that day, but that wasn't good enough for the scribes and the Pharisees, and over time they decided to define work. You shall not work. Well, what is work? And they sat down and came up with 39 things that they considered to be work. And they would add to what God clearly said, and they would give their own interpretation, and then they would say, well, these 39 things are things that we have decided is defined as work. And therefore, because you have violated what we've defined to be work, ultimately you have violated God's commandment, so therefore you are guilty of sin. That's how they thought. That was their reasoning. That was their thinking. And here's what they came up with as part of those classifications. Among the classifications of work were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and eating food prepared that wasn't prepared beforehand but prepared that day. And so here's, here's their logic. Plucking the grains was reaping. Rubbing them in their hands was threshing. Throwing away the husk and hanging on to the grain was winnowing. And then eating was a sin because it was food that wasn't prepared the day before. And so, therefore, they were guilty of sin before God. They thought that Jesus and his disciples were nailed on their accusation of breaking God's law. How? They determined that those who broke their interpretation of God's commandments broke God's laws. And they were sure they had him on this one. So, how did Jesus respond? Look at his argument. And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and he took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? I love every time they think they've nailed Jesus. They think they have a better understanding of the word of God than God who spoke the word. They go to God, and they go, in this case, to Jesus, and they say, you know what? You're guilty of sin because you have violated our interpretation of what God said on Sinai. You can't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, you are guilty of sin. And Jesus, as always, what did he do? Took him back to the Word of God. And he said, hey, have you not even read? I love the sense of irony in all of this. Because if we're to have any clarity whatsoever on what God says, then the only place to go is in the Word of God and not in others' interpretations of what they believe that God meant or what He said when He said what He said. Are you following me? It's really important to understand this because we get into a whole bunch of trouble in this area of our life. He was saying, have you not even read? Now stop and think about this for a second. He was saying to those who have heard, read, studied, memorized, meditated on God's word, who added their multiple interpretations, he's saying 
haven't you who have studied all these things and you've added all these interpretations and you've sat down and added to what God had said, and you self-proclaim experts on God's laws and his commandments, have you missed the message of what David did when he and his men were starving? They were being chased by Saul and his enemies. They entered into God's house on the Sabbath day. They were starving, and they're up in the front of the temple on the table where 12 loaves of bread that were baked fresh every Sabbath. Those 12 loaves were put on a gold table in the presence, literally in the presence of God. The 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were put there every week in God's presence for two reasons. Number one, it was to constantly remind Israel that God was the source of Israel's strength and nourishment. And two, was to remind them of of their dependence upon God for everything in life, both physical and spiritual. That was the whole purpose. That is why I would would exhort you, implore you, encourage you to pray before every meal. Not to be habitual about it and that we lose all sense of why we do it. Not to be baptized and the only thing you're thinking as you're going into the water is how quick they're going to pull me back up. The water's cold. Can't wait to get out. Not to lose the spiritual significance of what goes on, but the reason that we pray before meals because it is a way for us and a moment for us to recognize and understand that you know what that what is before us has been given to us and provided to us by God and it's to nourish us and strengthen us so that we can use the strength and the energy that God has given us in his service for his glory and to be reminded that everything that we have is dependent upon God not our own ingenuity not our own efforts not our own work not our own you know you know intelligence and everything else You know what? The whole world has all those things. But one thing that's different from the world than us is that we see God's hand in everything. That's why that we do it. That's why the bread was put there. And the problem was the only people who were allowed to eat that bread were the priests. David came in, and you can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 through 6. David came in with his men, and they were starving. And they went to the priest and said, is it okay if we have something to eat? And he took those consecrated loaves that were only for the priest and he gave it to David and his men so that they could eat. And guess what? It was on the Sabbath. And the message to them was very simple. Ahimelech, the priest, responded to the need of David and gave him on the Sabbath bread normally eaten only by the priests. And you ask yourself the question, what was the lesson? What is the message? What is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? And what is he saying to us? And it's very simple. Hosea 6.6 says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. And what he's saying is very simple. We see the divine principle that human need must not be subjected to cold legalism. Human need must never be subjected to man's rules and regulations. Human need always comes first and foremost before our interpretations of what we think the Bible is saying about anything. Compassion and mercy... You and I will never go wrong being compassionate and merciful, even if it means sometimes people will take advantage of us and that they use us and they manipulate us and they work, as we say, they work the system. Even if, we, if we're to err in any way, let us err in being compassionate and merciful. And for those who rip us off, 
They're in God's hands. But let us never reach out and be merciful to those whom we can meet in need to show the love of God in our lives. Because you know what Jesus said? I mean, what, the, what John says in 1 John chapter 3? He said, how can you say that the love of God is in your life when you behold your brother in need and you do nothing about it? How can you say you love God when you don't even extend mercy and compassion on those whom God brings before you? You're hypocritical in what you say. And what I learned from that is church rules must never violate the spirit of God's laws. Church rules must never violate the spirit of God's love. Church rules and regulations must never turn their back on the needs of those that God brings into our path. See, what he was saying was, in other words, if you understood Hosea 6.6, that God desires merciful, compassionate actions rather than ritual observance, you would have not have condemned my innocent disciples for plucking some grain on the Sabbath. What Jesus was saying to them was, you know what, wake up. Wake up. Can't you see how lost you are? Can't you see how cold-hearted you've become? Can't you see how you have lost sight of humanity as you sat down and came up with all your rules and regulations? Can't you see the simplicity of God's Word? God doesn't need your help interpreting what He says. Can't you see that? He's saying Ahimelech, he understood. He was a priest, but he understood that God desired mercy. And when David was starving, he gave him food, even though it was food consecrated for priests. He understood the the compassionate thing to do at that moment in time. Before moving on, what really troubled me as I read Jesus' argument, have you not even read, it really bothered me that, of course they've read it. They read it, but they never understood it. They memorized it. They meditated on it. They passed all the Bible quizzes on it. It's possible to hear, read, study, memorize, meditate on the Bible. It's possible to memorize verses. It's possible to pass every exam. It's possible to know the answers. And it's even possible to graduate from seminary and yet completely miss the meaning of God's Word. It's possible, and you know it, because I hear people quoting verses all the time, and it's like, what are you doing? It's not even, I mean, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It's not even the context in which you find it, and you take it out of context, and you want it to say something it doesn't say, which is two things I want to share. Why did the Pharisees miss the point? Why do we so often miss the point, number one? I believe we miss the point because they, and sometimes us, do not bring to their study of the Bible an open mind. They didn't bring to the study of the Word of God an open mind. They didn't bring an open mind to observe all the things that Jesus did. They didn't listen to Him quote Scripture. They didn't go back to the Word. They didn't check what it was saying. They didn't go there with an open mind. And so they missed the whole point. They missed it. They went to Scripture not to learn God's will, but to find text to prove their own ideas. Let me give you something from a very personal standpoint. That would be like me right now 
as we struggle and wrestle and pray about, you know, all the different things that are going on, that would be like me right now going to the Bible and finding every passage that I can find that talks about how God heals physical ailment. Why? Because I'm telling you up front, that sounds good to me. So you look at, through the Bible and you find everywhere where Jesus healed somebody. You t- find every passage where God healed somebody. And then when I get the passage like 2 Corinthians 12 where God allowed the thorn in the flesh for, for Paul, I just go, eh, I don't like that one. I don't like that passage. And then when I turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and find that everybody there end up dying for the cause of Christ, I go, ooh, well, that, that didn't sound good either. Um, so it's like, oh, I'll skip that and I forget that and I don't want to hear any of that. But you know what? That's foolishness. So when we go into the Word of God, we go in with an open mind and say, God, what is it that you want to tell me about what I am going through now in my life? What counsel do you have? What, what, what teaching do you have? What principles do you have? What do you want me to learn from you at this time in my life? And we get the full counsel of God. We've got to be very careful. We live in a world that goes to the Bible and tries to find those passages and verses that will validate their sinful behavior. And they'll throw out everything else that they don't agree with. And once you throw out anything, throw it all out. Because it doesn't mean anything anymore. The Pharisees went to the Scriptures to tell God what they believed about what God was saying instead of listening to what He had to say. Too often we go to the Bible to tell God what we believe instead of asking God what to believe. You and I need to go to the Word of God and say, God, what is it that I should believe? You teach me. You're God. I'm not. I don't have a clue. What do you want to do? How do you want to use this for your kingdom, for your glory? Therefore, glorify God in your earthly bodies. And what God has taught me is this. You know what? Chuck, whether you're healthy or whether you're disease-riddled, I want you to glorify me in this body of yours until I call you home. Simple. The second thing is they didn't bring a needy heart. They didn't bring an open mind. And they didn't bring a needy heart. The man who comes with no sense of need always misses the deepest meaning of the Bible. When need awakens, the Bible is a new book. For example, when Bishop Butler was dying, he was troubled. He said this, Have you forgotten, my Lord, said his chaplain, that Jesus Christ is a Savior? But, said the dying bishop, how can I know that he is a Savior for me? The chaplain said, It is written, He that cometh unto me I will in no way cast out. And Butler answered and said, I have read those words a thousand times, and I never saw their meaning until now. Now I die in peace. The sense of need unlocked for him the treasury of God's word. You and I will never understand the depths of Scripture until we come to God with an open mind and a needy heart. I learned some things laying in a hospital bed that I have never learned in 25 years of studying the scriptures. I learned what it meant to have a needy heart. I learned to identify with those who have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to go. You're not in any category we can put you in. We have no statistical data that you can rely upon. And that was our week this week. We, have really, we don't really know what to say to you. And it's a wonderful place to be because you know what? Because my hope is in Him. 
It's not in doctors. It's not in statistics. It's not in any type of medications. I mean, my hope is in him. And God made sure that it was because there is nothing else and nowhere else I can go and no one else I can lean on. And you know what? And I'm learning to praise him for that because there's no better place to be. Because everything else is false hope anyway. So if somebody gives you statistics or percentages or whatever, you know what? They don't know. They can only tell you what they think they know. But at the end of the day, I found out this week, we talked to a whole bunch of people who were educated and didn't know a whole bunch. <laughs> and it's kind of troubling, you know, because Linda and I are going, we were hoping maybe you guys knew something. <laughs> but, but that's all right, because what I'm learning is, is that, you know what? My hope is in him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I memorized it when I first became actually. Notice in verse 5, the application of his message to the Pharisees. Don't miss this. He says very simply, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah! Ho! The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a staggering claim because the Sabbath was a divine institution thundered down from Mount Sinai by God himself. Jesus' words asserted that he was greater than the Sabbath for lordship declares supremacy. And as such, Jesus Christ is greater than David. And if David could override the law without blame, how much more so could the greater son of David, the Messiah himself, do so? And what he is saying is this. You know what? I came up with the Sabbath, and I will tell you how the Sabbath was instituted and how it was to be conducted. And so don't be telling me your interpretations. I will tell you I am Lord of the Sabbath. And if it's all right with me that the disciples ate some grain, then it should be all right with you. Amen, brothers? Who instituted the law? God did. Who understood its meaning? God does. What, what did Jesus claim by this statement? He was claiming that he was God and therefore sovereign and had authority over the Sabbath day, its laws, and asserted his right as God to interpret its laws without reference to the tradition of men. He didn't have to ask them, is it okay with you? I have found that few things turn off folks quicker than someone's interpretation of God's laws and the imposition of such interpretation on another's life. We have got to be very careful not to become legalistic in a subtle manner where you and I determine what God's word says to others. It is amazing to me how many times I see this happen and the difficulty that it causes. How much should someone give? Everybody's got their own opinion about what God's word has to say. What should someone wear? How should someone have their hair? What movies, if at all, people should go to whatsoever? I see these kind of debates and arguments all the time. And, and, and when it comes down to... Who do you think you are interpreting God's word for someone else? To him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. To him that is sin. And God's laws are very clear in many areas. But in other areas, his word is very personal. Like when he told Peter and he looked at him and said, You know what? Don't worry about John. You follow me. 
I have a very specific will for you in your life to follow me, and I've got one for him, but it's not the same for you. So you stop worrying about what my will is for someone else's life. And if you're convicted that what you're doing is wrong, then you stop it. And if that other person isn't, then don't worry about it. And don't impose your interpretation of what I say on them. That's between me and them, and I'll deal with them. There's nothing that destroys fellowship, nothing that destroys churches more than imposing one's interpretation of God's word on another. And we've got to be very careful not to allow that to creep in subtly and destroy what God is doing. You follow him and don't worry about anybody else. Yes, we should turn a brother from sin Yes, we should confront one another if what is being done is blatant violation of the Word of God. I'm not saying ignore what God clearly teaches. I'm saying in all those areas that God does not clearly say one thing or another, let's not become pharisaical and say, you, you violated God's Word by working on the Sabbath because we think that you pick and grain, we've decided and defined it as work. And Jesus said, go back to the Word of God and you'll get clarity. And that's what I say to us. When you're troubled by something, go back to the Word of God with an open mind and a needy heart, and He'll give you clarity. What do we learn from all this? Number one, human need comes before man-made rules and regulations. Number two, don't impose your interpretation of God's Word on others. Number three, go to the Bible with an open mind and a needy heart and seek God's wisdom. You're God. I'm here to listen to you. You tell me what it is you want me to learn. And then when you learn it, apply it. Because if you're not applying it, you haven't learned it. Be doers and not hearers only. Did the Pharisees learn the lesson? No. All God's lessons, by the way, are on pass or fail basis. Just want to let you know. That's it. Not on a grade. He doesn't try to get you off to the next class. You know, oh man, you've been a problem. You know, I'm going to give you a C and let you slide and let the next person deal with you. God, you know, it's like pass or fail. Are you learning? Did you learn? Pass. Next lesson. Did you learn? No. Did you learn? No. Repeat the lesson. How do I know it's true? Well, look at this. And it came about on another Sabbath. Well, why is he going to do it on another Sabbath? Because they didn't learn from the previous Sabbath experience, and they didn't understand what he said then, and so we go to the next one. Hey, you know what? And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Okay, now follow this. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Here we see his authority over deformity and the attempt to accuse Jesus revealed the Pharisees' lack of compassion and their guilt before God. They couldn't wait to see if Jesus would heal this man. And guess what? They knew that he would. They knew he was compassionate. They knew that he was merciful. They knew that if the guy with the withered hand was in the temple that day, and they knew as it was his custom, Jesus would come to the temple. It was just like back in the days of Daniel where everybody knew when Daniel prayed, they knew where to find him. They knew when he'd be praying. Jesus' life was so consistently righteous that they knew where they would find him on the Sabbath. And they also knew that if this guy was there, that he would heal him on the Sabbath. And they were going to have another party about how they caught him again and here we go again there is an outrageous irony here 
that religious men sinisterly watched Jesus' every move to, show if he, to see if he'd show kindness and heal the man. And so if he did, they would charge him with sin. How wicked and evil had these men become. Sad. It's pathetic. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew chapter 5. Put another way, a merciful spirit is a sign of having received mercy, while an unmerciful spirit is a sign of not having experienced God's mercy. No matter how religious you are, if you don't care about the welfare of others, you have no concern about the salvation of the lost, guess what? You are lost. You are lost. And people don't like to hear that. Who do you think you are saying that, you know, I'm lost. I know I trusted in Christ. All I can tell you is this. The word of God clearly says there are many who deceive themselves into believing they're saved when they're not. And there's objective evidence by the word of God. If you're merciful, then you've experienced mercy. Then you'll, you, you'll sh- show mercy. There's evidence that's there. Don't be deceived. Examine yourself. See if you're really in the faith. There are many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing in your name? And I'll say, hey, you know what? Never knew you, never met you. Be gone from me forever. You are religious people, but you never came into a relationship with me. You never repented of your sins. You never responded to the finished work of Christ on the cross. You never trusted in him as your Savior and his resurrection for the power to give life. You didn't even know God. You were religious. These guys were as religious as they come and they were as far from God as anyone on the face of the earth we cannot soften what God teaches clearly if you do not show mercy you better examine yourself to see if you've ever experienced the mercy of God at the foot of the cross notice the answer of Jesus to their thoughts revealed their own guilt but he knew what they were thinking there's another claim of deity God knows. He knows my thoughts. Psalm 139. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows when I get up. He knows everything about me. He knows me. He knew their thoughts. And he said to them, and he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. You know, what's interesting is that as we look at this, the answer of Jesus revealed their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. Jesus looked right into the very soul, if you remember, of Levi. And the bottom line is this. You cannot fool God. He knows you today. If you've come to faith and trust in him, you cannot fool him if you have not. He knows you. And what he saw in their souls is seen in the anger of Jesus that's revealed when you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It says, and Jesus was angry at them. He was angry at them. How in the world could you claim to be God's people And try to set me up that if I heal this man and show compassion on this man, you would accuse me of sin? He was angry at them, at their callousness, at their lack of mercy. He knew what they were thinking. You know, what's interesting is only only Luke tells us that it was his right hand. He with his withered hand. And we're told as we look there, there was a man in verse 6 with a right hand. I love that. That's a physician's look at life. All the other gospel accounts have just said, hey, man, the, hand, the guy's hand was withered. Luke said, well, it was his right hand, if you want to be specific. You know, it was interesting. When I was laying on, on, on the gurney, you know, when they are taking me to surgery, they, they have you write down uh, on the leg, on this, in this case, the leg they were going to cut, they, they had me write down okay on this one. You know, it's like, I got to write okay? Well, how big did I got to write it? I mean, you know, okay? It's like, you know, okay, and on this one, not okay. 
not okay. It's like, where do you stop? Okay, right there. It's not okay anywhere else. And I'm thinking, but, you know, it's real interesting because it's like you've got to be very specific. It's okay there. You know, and then I put arrows everywhere else. Not okay, not okay, not okay. But, but when I look at this, it's like, here's Luke. He says, you know, it was his right hand. I love that. It was his right hand. I mean, he's very specific about this, you know. And, and Jesus looks at him and he says to him, all those around, he asked him, rise and come forward. He rose and came forward. Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretched out his hand and he did so and his hand was restored. And they all praise God, right? Awesome. God's mercy, compassion. The Savior is here. The kingdom of God is about to be ushered in. We've been waiting for you, looking for you. We've seen God's word and we know who you are because of the things that you do identify you as God's promised one. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You're my Savior. No, they didn't do any of that. Look what they did. They were filled with rage. Can you imagine a person being healed would cause you to become filled with rage? Filled with rage and out of their minds literally means they were out of their minds. They could not think rationally, logically, reasonably. They were so filled with hatred, the other gospel accounts tell us that because of this, they planned to kill Jesus. Who do you think you are embarrassing us? Who do you think you are destroying everything, hundreds of years, all these rules and regulations that we've come up with? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're God or something? Uh, Yeah, that's right. True Bible-believing Christians go to God with an open mind and a needy heart. True faith, saving faith, produces mercy. It is no surprise, contrary to the lies of our day, that talk about how cold-hearted fundamentalist, fundamental Christians are. But if you look at the history of the world, I'm here to challenge you to understand that it was godly people, men and women who had been transformed by the grace of God through faith in Christ, who were born again by the power of God, the will of God, not their own efforts. Those who came to know Christ, old things passed away, all things became new. It, were, it was men and women who had come to faith in Christ that led the majority of social changes that have taken place throughout the world. It was men like William Wilberforce who stood up, who was a, he was a former tr- uh, slave trader who when he came to experience the mercy of God and had come to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, was born again, who led the abolitionist movement and said, this is wrong before God. And I know because I was once there. Once I was blind and now I can see. That was the business I was, I was in and trading human beings and how wrong it was before God and it was a person who was redeemed that stood up before the world and said, this is wrong and it's got to stop. People like William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, led to that social movement that said, you know what, God's people cannot allow other people in the world to go hungry and starving and be in need without reaching out and touching them. Because how can we who have received the mercy of God not show mercy and compassion on those that God brings into our life? They were fundamentalist right-wing, radical Christians who elevated the place of women and children in society that changed the face of the earth because of their faith in Christ. 
Of course, mercy and compassion doesn't make one a Christian. Nevertheless, true faith produces a merciful heart. And true believers are compassionate to the needy, to the poor, to the immigrants, to the cultural outcasts, to unstable folks, to alcoholics, to drug abusers, to prisoners, to AIDS victims. Christians care about sinners. That's why we witness to them about the love of Jesus Christ and win them to Him. Dynamic mercy in all of its dimensions is nothing less than the life of Christ living in us and through us. And such a life is costly. It's inconvenient. It raises tensions. It brings conflict. It's humbling. It's counter-cultural. But it's our calling. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This week would be a great week to allow the love of God, the love of Christ living in, in you, be demonstrated to someone who's unlovely in your life. It's time for our compassion to be moved to action. Today's the day. It's a new day. Let's live it for the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown to us. And yet, even while we were sinners, Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for calling us from darkness into light for those of us who have repented of our sins and responded to the finished work of Christ, believing that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and have received him as our Savior. God, may we, like the Apostle Paul, say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. God, may we reach the world around us with your grace, with your compassion, and with your mercy. And may you get all the praise and glory. Amen.